morning. So last week, we took a look at Revelation 6. The lamb in John's vision took the scroll from God's hand and began to break the seals and open the scroll. And each time a seal was broken, um, something dark and terrible and difficult happened. The first four seals were opened in last week's passage, verses 1 through 8. Uh, today we shift gears as the Lamb continues to open the seals with the fifth seal. But as he does so, there's going to be a dramatic shift in the formula. No longer uh, does one of the four living creatures cry out, Come. No longer does a horse and rider appear coming uh, and bringing along with it some form of, of judgment. Something's different. Let's look at it. Verses 9 and 10 of chapter 6. Try it again. Why don't you move me to that one? When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? The cry of the martyred souls that God will avenge their deaths is a prayer of lament. Lament is a form of prayer we do not often use in worship. Certainly not public worship, but we do find it in our Bibles. For example, just under half of uh, the Psalms, of the 150 Psalms in the book of Psalms, just under half of them would be categorized as prayers or Psalms of lament. And the book of Lamentations is a collection of five, traditionally written by Jeremiah, a collection of five poems of lamentation that express the pain and the grief of the people of Judah as they're taken into exile. And while you and I do not often pray prayers of lament and worship, I think we do hear lament of a different stripe popping up in popular music. So in this case, we might say that the prayers of lament found in the book of Lamentations, found in the book of Psalms, are the country songs, or the blues songs of the Bible. Hey, why don't you play me another somebody done somebody wrong song? Or maybe they're Taylor Swift songs of the Bible. And since this is yet another dark passage that we're going through, let's lighten the mood a bit. We're going to play a game. Let's try to identify whether the, uh, the words I'm going to show you, the phrases I'm going to show you, come from the Book of Lamentations or a Taylor Swift lyric. It's just not going to go. It's all you. All right, here we go. The game is Lamentations or Taylor Swift lyric. Here's the first question. We're going to vote. It is good for a man to bear the yoke while he is young. Who says Taylor Swift? Yeah, see, I gave you an easy one to start. Who says Lamentations? The answer is Lamentations 327. Next question. She cries herself to sleep at night, tears soaking her pillow. Who says Lamentations? Who says Taylor Swift? Answer is Lamentations 1-2. Way to go, Nick! You and one other person. Fantastic. Your knives and swords and weapons that you use against me. Who says Lamentations? Who says Taylor Swift? Answer is Taylor Swift! Next question. I'll never forget the trouble, the poison I've swallowed. Who says Lamentations? Way to go, Sam. Who says Taylor Swift? Who just doesn't know? <laughs> the answer is Lamentations 319. Next question. All we are is skin and bone. 
Who says Lamentations? You might ought to watch Sam on this one. I don't know. Who says Taylor Swift? Answer us. Taylor Swift. Is there another one? I think there's one more. I'm aching. No past. Nowhere to hide. Who says Lamentations? Dick Rambo says Lamentations. Who says Taylor Swift? Answer is Taylor Swift. Not bad. I think that's it. Is that it? There we go. That's it. Not bad. I don't know. It's from the message that kind of tricks you a little bit, the message translation, but that's how we trick you. That's how we do it. Uh, there are more questions to that. I don't know. Maybe we'll come back to them another time. Maybe not. <laughs> back to our passage. This throne room that we have been in since chapter 4 has an altar. The place for religious sacrifices. Several times in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul will say something like, uh, like he does in Romans 12, like we are to, we are to give up our, ourselves as living sacrifices. Or he pours himself out, he's being poured out as, a, as a, a, a drink offering on the altar. And the picture there is of sacrifices made temple in the temple. The blood comes out of the animal being sacrificed. It runs down the altar toward the bottom and underneath the altar. The blood of the sacrifices was important because it was believed that the life of the animal was contained in the blood, the lifeblood. And the words life and self and soul are interchangeable in Scripture. They're interchangeable. So when John says that he saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain, it's not too much of a leap to see this as a symbol of their lives being poured out as sacrificial offerings. The blood... Their lifeblood runs down over the altar, down the sides, and underneath, and from there they cry out. Their lives, their souls cry out. They lament. Again, let's keep in mind, and as we're entering into this territory in Revelation, we're going to have to remind ourselves of this regularly, I think. This is highly symbolic language. These images uh, are not meant to be taken literally. They are meant to evoke understanding and emotion in prayer. Verse 10, these souls cry out in a loud voice, how long? Now this is a phrase that pops up often in the Old Testament when God's people want justice or deliverance or freedom or simply to complain about something. For example, Psalm 79, God's people cry out. How long, Lord, will you be angry forever? How long will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your wrath on the nations that do not acknowledge you, on the kingdoms that do not call on your name, for they have devoured Jacob and devastated his homeland. Likewise, in Revelation 6.10, these, these martyred saints cry out to God, how long until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Now, I, I don't know about you, but when uh, these martyred saints cry out for God to avenge their deaths, it feels like something we Christians shouldn't do. We shouldn't ask for God to avenge our deaths. It doesn't feel very Jesus-like. Uh, it, it doesn't sound like loving our enemies. So it makes me a bit uncomfortable. But let's be honest. The desire for vengeance, whether it's very Jesus-like or not, is a very human experience. It's a very human experience. Kim and I will be watching a movie or a television show, and there'll be a particularly nasty villain and he's cruel and what have you, and at some point I will say, mark my words, this guy is going to have a very bad ending, and it's going to be very satisfying. <laughs> now, I don't usually think that way about real-life villains. Most of the time, occasionally, I might. But TV villains, movie villains, particularly cruel. This week I discovered that uh, on YouTube there's a compilation, there's two compilations, actually, 
of, uh, of uh, video or scenes from movies where villains fall to their death. Some of those people fall a very long way before they die. Whether it's Emperor Palpatine in Star Wars or Hans Gruber in Die Hard, when it comes time for them to meet their doom, I tend to want it to count for something because they deserve it. It's human to feel that way. It's human to feel that way. And these martyrs were humans. They wanted their deaths to be avenged. They wanted those who put them to death to be punished, but so they cry out for it, and they wonder what's taking so long. And the answer comes in the following verse, verse 11. Then each, of, to each of, then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. These martyrs were given white robes, symbols of purity and blessedness for their faithfulness in life and in death. And then they are told they have to wait a little longer until the full number of sisters and brothers were killed as, just as they had been. This is not to say <clears throat> that there was a number, a threshold, a quota that God had set, that as soon as that many are killed, he'll come take care of it. In fact, the word number doesn't occur in the Greek. This is people trying to interpret things. Another translation might be finished, until it's finished. That is, God would wait until they were finished. These sisters and brothers were finished with their work of faithful testimony, bearing witness to Jesus, even to the point of death. When their work was finished, God would hear the cry of the martyrs under the altar, and God would bring justice. In a very important way, this delay in achieving justice for the martyrs is God's mercy. It gives more time for others to repent. 2 Peter 3.9 tells us this plainly. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. While it is true that there is a lot of judgment in Revelation, it is also true that there's a lot of mercy on God's part, a lot of patience. As long as you and I live on this beautiful but broken planet, however, suffering and violence and death, they're going to be a reality. Persecution and martyrdom are going to be a reality, but the time of God's justice will eventually come. Judgment Day is also a reality. Next, when the Lamb opens the sixth seal, things get really dark and seemingly cosmic. Verses 12 through 14. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. That was a Star Trek sound. I heard that. Wasn't you? Okay. Well, it wasn't me. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red and the stars in the sky fell to earth. As figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind, the heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Now now we're getting into the kind of imagery that the book of Revelation is famous for. But again, this is metaphor and symbol. We cannot take this literally, because friends, that is not how the universe actually works. Stars do not fall from the sky like figs dropping from a fig tree. It's a vivid image that is meant to cause us to take notice and to describe something horrific that is happening, something amazing that is happening. Like you and I might say, that, was, uh, that, was, that day, it was like an earthquake. We would say something like that. That's what this is doing. N.T. Wright puts it this way. He says, Revelation is a book designed to go on making you ponder 
and pray, not one designed to answer everything to your satisfaction. Revelation is a book that is designed to make you go on pondering and praying, not designed to answer everything to your satisfaction. The symbolism provokes wonder and prayer. Verses 15 and 16. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Still more proof that we are dealing with symbols here. You cannot hide in caves. You cannot call out to the mountains to fall upon you and cover you. I mean, I wouldn't want to anyway. That sounds awful. But you can't do that if every mountain has already been removed. But if we can't take these things literally, how should we take them? How should we interpret them? This is the kind of language that pops up several times in Scripture. It is apocalyptic language, that it's part of apocalyptic literature. It is apocalyptic language that is meant to describe or portray real-world events using over-the-top cosmic imagery. It is apocalyptic literature that is meant to describe real-world events using over-the-top cosmic imagery. Isaiah 13, for example... Uh, the prophet uh, Isaiah prophesies a day of judgment against Babylon. He calls it the day of the Lord. Isaiah yeah, 13, verses 9 and 10. See, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The day of the Lord imagery has been around since the Israelites were delivered from slavery in Egypt. It comes up again and again. It refers to Babylon, as it does in Isaiah, and to Rome, as it does in Revelation. Jesus himself uses this kind of language when he speaks of the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in Matthew chapter 24. And then, borrowing directly from Isaiah this passage, but now referring to the dramatic events of his own return, this is what he says in Matthew 24, 29. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. This kind of symbolic language is used in Scripture both to warn of God's coming judgment in and through historical events and to speak of the coming of God's final judgment. It all gets mixed up sometimes. In fact, right at the end of chapter 6 in Revelation, we get a hint of the final judgment in what John sees. With the opening of the sixth seal, all who fear God's judgment are crying out for protection from, quote, the wrath of the Lamb. Now, to refer to the wrath of the Lamb is meant to be a bit of a shock to our systems. It doesn't, it doesn't fit, perhaps, certainly not with the way I think of the Lamb. It seems contradictory. What does wrath have to do with a helpless Passover lamb? So while we could get into uh, all of that this morning and spend some time on it, I think it's best simply to let it make us uncomfortable if it's making you uncomfortable. To let it be what it is. We're going to come back to this idea again and again in the book of Revelation, and we'll have more time then to unpack it. For now, and I think this is important, let's allow it to be what it is and try not to deconstruct it too much. And let's remember that to those who were faithful 
to those who had lost loved ones and friends to the empire's violence and persecution, the wrath of the Lamb was good news. It was the promise that the bad guys would get it good in the end. Not to be clear, <clears throat> it's all way more nuanced than that. But I think for the moment, we need to let wrath be wrath for the sake of the martyrs under the altar. Meanwhile, at the end of chapter 6, the people who fear the wrath of the Lamb cry out in verse 17, for the great day of their wrath, that's God on the throne and the Lamb, the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? More literally, who can stand? Who can stand? How are we going to make it? And the answer is going to come for us in chapter 7, which we're not actually going to get to until the Sunday after Thanksgiving. Chapter 7 is the first of those ten interludes that I've mentioned before. In Revelation 7, John gives us another vision that will seek to answer the question, who can stand against the face of God and the wrath of the Lamb? Who can stand? And then we'll see in chapter 7, an immeasurable gathering of persons from every nation, every tribe, every people, every language, worshiping God and the Lamb. And then those voices will be joined by the angels and the four living creatures and the 24 elders around the throne, all of them singing praises to God in heaven. At the height of all this worship, Resounding throughout heaven, we read the very next thing that happens in chapter 8, verse 1. The seventh seal is about to be opened by the Lamb, and John and the seven churches to whom he has written this letter are terrified. Maybe excited, but also terrified. It's time. God's final judgment is at hand. But that's not what happens. Verse 1, chapter 8. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Silence. For about a half an hour. The multitudes, the angels, the four living creatures, the 24 elders have been worshiping at full voice. Then, silence. Silence signals reverence and awe in the presence of God. Silence is a form of worship. The fact that this half hour of silence happens when it does, right at the climax of the opening of the seventh seal, when everybody's waiting for judgment, the fact that it happens there, then at that time, matters. For some Jewish traditions, sacrifices were offered in silence. Another tradition held that the angels should be silent when the saints of God were praying and bringing their prayers to God. The same was true of Greek and Roman uh, worshipers of pagan gods. Silence whenever anyone is offering prayer. Something sacred and holy and, and mysterious is happening, and silence was the only proper response. John goes on to describe what was happening during this half hour of silence. And first, the, the next cycle of sevens is introduced, the trumpets. But before the trumpets are sounded, something profound happens. Verses uh, 2 through 4, chapter 8. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. 
This is that nesting. We're nesting the next cycle of seven, the trumpets, in the end of the, the, the cycle of the seals. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense together with the prayers of God's people went up before God from the angel's hand. One of the things we strain to look for in these difficult and sometimes dark scenes in the book of Revelation is hope. Where are the signs of hope? Where are the signs of mercy and comfort, even amid the warnings of judgment, even amid the suffering, the human suffering that is going on? And so far, we have named God's mercy and patience as a place of hope. God delays the coming judgment, allowing evildoers the time to repent. In fact, we will see as we continue through these cycles of seven judgment that these judgmental threats, this, these three cycles of seven, these threats, these events, don't work. It says right in the text, no one repented. No one repented. No one repents as a result of the four horsemen, the horrors of the fifth and sixth seals, and the same will be true of the seven trumpets and the seven bowls. No one. It is something else entirely that's going to lead people to repentance. But you'll have to wait for it. One of the other places we see God's mercy and comfort and hope is here in the throne room of God where our prayers, where your prayers, my prayers are brought to God by an angel who holds them before God as they mingle together with the incense, the smoke from the incense and the golden censer. It is, as the psalmist says in Psalm 141, verse 2, may my prayer be set before you like incense. May the lifting up of my hands be like the evening sacrifice. <clears throat> our prayers matter. They rise up to the very throne room of God like incense. This scene is symbolic of the cry of the martyrs under the altar in chapter 6, reaching the ears of God. It is a promise that God will answer, that God will act on their behalf. When we do not know what to do with culture wars and cancel culture, with racial injustice and poverty, with the war between Hamas and Israel, the invasion of Ukraine, you name it. When we don't know what to do, we can pray and our prayers matter. I don't know about you, but that is way too easy for me to forget sometimes. I, I don't know how prayer works really or how God decides which prayers to answer and how to answer them, but I do know that God is at work. And I do know that in some mysterious way, my prayers and your prayers rise before God like incense and that they are heard. As we close, I want to invite you to two possible responses. The most challenging response is to invite you sometime this week to make uh, time for an extended time of silence. It does not have to be a half an hour, but it could. Or maybe you can spread that 30 minutes over a few days, do five minutes for six days. There's a link on the screen that will take you to one way you can practice the silence if you just like a little help on how you might do it, ecclife.net slash breath-prayer. Second, as we sing our closing songs today, Toward the end of the first song, we're going to go to silence for about a minute. Not 30 minutes, just one. It may go longer, but that, that's our plan. One minute. Total silence. In that silence, <clears throat> I want to invite you to remain standing. If you'd like, you can come down and kneel if you'd like to do that. Whatever, however you feel you want to respond. Allow God, uh, we're going to give you time to do this in just a minute before we get to the song, but allow God to bring to you something 
uh, a situation, a relationship, a person, a, a world situation, a current event, something, uh, a challenge uh, that, that, that needs our prayers of lament and intercession. Shouldn't be hard. One thing. Something in your life or in the world that is in need of our prayers of lament and intercession. Take whatever comes to mind, and then make your pain and your lament known to God and cry out for God to move and to act in that situation. And as you do, know that your prayers, like incense, are rising to the throne room of God. And then after a time of silence, we will continue singing and praising God together as we close our worship. Would you join us now as I just uh, make some space for you to maybe hear what that might be for you to bring to prayer here in a few minutes, uh, and then I'll close this in prayer. Would you join with me? God, we invite you now by your Spirit to come and speak in this time of silence to remind us of something, Lord, that we want to lament over, that we need to lament over. God, we are thankful for this picture <clears throat> that our brother John has preserved for us of the throne room. We are thankful, Lord God, that you do hear the prayers of your people. We are thankful, Lord God, for the brothers and sisters in Revelation and beyond and up to today who continue to be faithful in their witness to you, even at great cost to themselves. We lift them up, God, and we pray for your protection. We pray for deliverance. We pray they would hold fast, and that you would keep them in our prayers. And we pray, O oh God, that as we begin to worship around your throne ourselves, that when the time of silence comes, that we would uh, faithfully lament and intercede for the things you have placed in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.